Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Okay, we're talking about Marge Percy's book, He, She, and It. It used to be that science fiction was dominated by men, and there were only very few female science fiction writers. But those times are changing, and Marge Percy is one of a number of female science fiction writers that have achieved an extraordinary level of excellence, winning the prizes, the great prizes such as the Arthur C. Clarke Award and so on. Well, Marge Percy has written a whole bunch of books, but this one, He, She, and It, is uh, one of my favorites. What are some of the theory, the theory themes, you might call them, theory themes of the book? What is this book about? Like when we were covering um, Brave New World, we were talking about a certain dystopian future and we're talking about control of information and other things, basic ideas. I'm not sure if I remember correctly what it says on the syllabus, but I know on your website somewhere it calls it Hold on one second, one second, one second before you start. Let me grab the syllabus. Here it is. From the syllabus, we talk. We have a, a number of things listed, and these are themes, theory themes, such as the struggle between collectivism and individualism, population growth and environmentalism, utopianism, dystopianism, the politics of gender, artificial intelligence, slavery, slavery, political reason, bioengineering, apocalypse and war, corporatism, cyberpunk, technological dependency, the struggle to control the evolutionary dependent of a civilization, following the collapse of a previous social order or political order. Those are types of things. And um, the, one of the themes that I wrote for this week is gender and artificial intelligence. So what are some of the other themes? When What are some, even explain those themes? This is a complicated book. What's going on with this book in terms of themes? What if you were trying to explain it to your parents? What did you read at this semester at Emory? What would you tell them? Were you going to say something? Uh, I was just saying what I remember you having on website called Feminist Cyberpunk. Mm. Cyberpunk. Feminist Cyberpunk. What is Cyberpunk? you got to speak up. The mic's all the I way really over here. I couldn't explain it to you. What do you think is Cyberpunk? What is Cyberpunk? Well, what does cyber mean? Just computer, internet, um, yeah, just like the, the internet kind of um, theme or connection. Cybernetics, computational stuff, internet theme, computational, computer. There used to be a company called Cyber, they used to have a cyber computer that used to be a big deal back in the real old days. The cybernetics. So what is cyberpunk? The embracing of like counterculture, an extremist, well, not extremist, but an extreme form of counterculture that uses technology and incorporates it in new and uh, different ways. So. But wouldn't that, wouldn't that 
be all of science fiction, using technology in new and different ways? Well, I mean, not necessarily. One of the main tenets of science fiction is uh, predicting the path of, uh, you know, current electronics use uh, and to see how it will ultimately end up. And this is taking uh, what's currently being used and thinking of it in a different sense, not necessarily what it will become, but what it could be used for, maybe not right now, but in the near future. But you're talking about electronic stuff. Electronic things can be like weapons, phasers... What is cyberpunk, and how is that different from other types of science fiction where other types of far-flung advanced gadgetry is involved? Is, um, is it the sort of um, fusing of, let's say, a human's technology? A uh, human what technology? A human's um, technology, like more a human um, interface, kind of like cyborg-esque. Kind of to an extent, um, yes, to an extent, there's a crossover between human and cybernetics. What else is cyberpunk about? What is sort of the defining idea of cyberpunk? There are some great cyberpunk novels out there. Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash is one of them. Cyberpunk. What would that be all about? William Gibson's Neuromancer. What is that all about? Cyberpunk. Just try to figure it out. When I hear cyberpunk, I think. Well, I think first punk, so counterculture. Counterculture, good. Fighting the man. Fighting the man. And um, there's air quotes around that. Uh, And you know, so you think essentially geeks becoming, you know, the punks of the world. Okay, you've got the punks down right. The geeks becoming the rebels, fighting the man. Now, how does that mix with cyber punk? Are they basically, I won't say rebelling, but fighting against the cybernetics that's kind of taken hold now, as in, like, where all the people in the glop basically live outside of these the multis that have all, you know, the advanced technology and they're learning to live and cope without? Not really. It's not fighting against the technology. It's embracing it more to use it, to use it to fight, actually. Yes, to use it to fight. But there's something more. When you think of something that's punk, punk rock, what do you get with punk rock? What's a typical way to describe punk rock? There's anger. What else? Would Frank Sinatra be an example of punk rock? Okay, why? What would be different between... I mean, punk rock is one of those things that you know it when you see it. Compare it with something that it's not, such as Frank Sinatra. What is punk rock? If you were to watch a punk rock group, what would they look like, probably? How many people have seen a punk rock group? Is that before your day? 
Are you all rapsters? <coughs> well, rebels for sure. Grungy for sure. Counterculture for sure. There's no suits and ties among punk rockers. Outcasts for sure. So if you have disheveled clothes, out of work, that look, even if they're millionaires, that type of look, and you're talking about cyber stuff, well, if you're punk rock, what do you do? You have that look, you're a counterculture, you're a rebel, you're grungy, you're doing everything opposite what mainstream society would like you to do, to be pretty, male or female, and then rock. You rock it out. And what kind of rock would they use? Would they be listening to Old Doors Day tunes? Be heavy type of stuff. Driving rhythms, heavy, heavy metal type of things, but, you know, real driving, loud, blast your mind apart type music. Now just think, cyberpunk. It's not quite the same view of a person as sort of a cyberpunk. If you, I mean, if you Google cyberpunk, and the first thing that comes up is a picture of someone in sort of very futuristic clothing with the, with the big goggles and some sort of jet pack on their back or something. Why are the goggles for? Experiments? <laughs> no, not. <laughs> <laughs> UV radiation. You see, with the idea of cyberpunk, you have the idea of counterculture, you have the idea of rebels fighting against the man with unbelievable odds being against you as a cyberpunker. But there's almost always an infusion of cybernetic thinking in the sense of the Matrix movie, where you're in there, where there's a projection into that alternate universe, that projection into that computational world. With cyberpunk, there is fundamentally a projection of the mind into an alternate cybernetic universe where dual lives often take place. Now, that's not the only definition of cyberpunk, but that's a very common theme. So when you get Snow Crash by Neil Stephenson, Neuromancer by William Gibson, or He, She, and It by Marge Percy, you have the net. You have the place to go. And somehow, through some technological means, you get into it. And you live a life there, an alternate life there. And then you live a life in the real world out here, but you live a life in the cybernetic world as well. And it's a little bit like the games that you see today with avatars, with beings inside those games that represent you. And they can sometimes look like you in the real world, or they can sometimes look different from you. And there's that counterculture fighting the man, both in that world and in the main world simultaneously going on and the tension that goes back and forth between that that level of rebellion in both worlds 
and the dangers associated with it and the crossovers across both worlds where things that go over in one world matter to things that happen in the other world. Both ways, things that happen in the physical world matter to things that happen in the cyber world and things that happen in the cyber world, the computational world, matter to things that happen in the physical world. And you lose track of one controlling the other because both of them are mutually dependent on one another. So that's a future where that future reality, that cybernetic reality, that existence becomes becomes very real. And often they use terms like jack in, like you jack into the net, or you project in somehow. You get into it somehow. Sometimes they use goggles. And the current use of goggles by gamers is along those lines. That it's a very primitive way to get into the system. And that's used by Neil Stephenson in Snow Crash, but it's a way to get into the system. You have to have some way to get input data from the net into the mind. And one way to do it is to cover the eyes so that you can't see anything but that world. You become entranced by it, you become intermixed by it. But there are other ways that are across the various novels and sometimes there's a hardwire connection where they, some person, the people have actually spots where they plug wires in. Those wires get connected to the cybernet and so on, directly to the brain. Go ahead. Sorry, never mind. Okay. Well then, what are some of the themes? We talked about the idea, I've already brought up the idea of uh, gender and artificial intelligence. How does gender relate to this to this novel? Well, all the main characters, for the most part, are, are women or influenced thereby. Um, I know Shira, or I think that's how you pronounce her name, um, yeah, is the main it. character. Her son has been taken from her. She's kind of like the distraught mom mm-hmm. who has to fight against the world, in essence, to get him back. Um, <laughs> then Malka, her grandmother, mm-hmm. also is depicted as a very strong woman. All the women in the, the novel are just continually depicted as very strong, very, um, well, I won't say emotionally stable, but um, powerful characters. Even, I think her name's Chava. Mm-hmm. The woman. Go ahead. I mean, you say Chava. And the Golem story is, even though she's been widowed, it doesn't, you know, hold her down. She still strives for intelligence. It's like, all of them are continually reinforced as being strong. Even even Yod is programmed um, at least one-third by woman, and he has some tendencies to, you know, have more feminine characteristics. Uh, um, and just in terms of uh, pronunciation, um, it's Yod after the uh, Hebrew letter Yod. Okay. Just. You will find that people will pronounce these novel... Um, names in all types of ways. And there are correct pronunciations and incorrect pronunciations, but we have to remember, this takes place almost 100 years from now. So who knows what the pronunciations will be at that point. So. Well, but in yeah. terms of a Hebrew, I doubt that the a character Yod is going to change the way you say it. So mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. Well, I guess what I'm saying here is in the context of the course... Right. It's a letter of the alphabet, so it's yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The corrections are noticed in the co- in the context of the course, so um, there will be mistakes, and it's okay to mispronounce the 
mispronounce the names and then to pronounce them correctly when you have the chance. When you see other names in other novels, some of them are really weird names. And if you come up with a pronunciation that works with you, that's okay. In one of the novels that my son was recently reading, there's a character called David Five. There's a five at the end of the word David. You figure out how to pronounce that thing. And <laughs> so, okay, what do you want to go? So, uh, and there's there's really weird um, other pronunciations for all types of things. But anyway, we understand uh, the correct pronunciations are are useful. So always bring them up. But if you don't use them, if you forget, just keep talking. Okay, don't get inhibited by the idea that you may not get the pronunciation of of a name right in any novel that we talk about ever. Just get your ideas out. Okay? Okay. Um, those were great thoughts that were raised with regard to gender. The strong feminist appeal in all of this. Uh, what else? I think there's also, uh, I think it's important to note, uh, a very positive portrayal of men that are uh, supporters of women. And a very negative portrayal of men that don't uh, respect and treat women as equals or people worth So among the men, there's good guys and bad guys. Yeah. And I mean, they're... But bad, bad guys defined very often in terms of how they treat women. Yeah. I mean, there are some weaker women, certainly, but the, the main focus, uh, main focuses of the novel are the stronger women, typically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gender, artificial intelligence. Where does the artificial intelligence come in? With Yud. Um, basically, it starts with Avram's building of increased love, intricacy um, cyborgs. And um, it starts off with, which one was the one that killed? David. Well... Um, basically, he starts off building just plain robots um, where all of them have to be able to be distinguished by looking robotic. And his line of work, he deviates um, from doing such because it's illegal. And eventually it ends with Yud, who is free-thinking with his own motivations. Basically, he's human, but made from machine parts. Oh, by the way, I made a mistake. I didn't mean David Five. I meant De Five. The Five is in the middle of the word David in this other novel. That's a, it's a, a snow crash by, uh, by uh, Neil Stephenson. But okay, that is very good. Um, finish up what you have. So, um, basically, the, one of the bigger, um, I don't want to say competition, bigger straining points throughout the novel is kind of like the women viewing Yud as basically a person who is, you know, capable of, of free thought, of emotion, of, you know, having his own desires and wants. And Avram's kind of desire of this is my machine, I made him, he's going to stay here, and um, Tikva, and basically defend us. That's all he's been made for. That's what he'll do. That's interesting. So it, the idea of artificial intelligence then is coming up against the idea of 
human identity. So that's basically what you're saying. What does it mean to be human? Now there's a story that's interwoven throughout the novel. And what's that about? The a mythical uh, golem in the uh, city of Prague. Mm-hmm. And how did that happen? What what actually happens? How did golem come to be? Um, a uh, or golem. I always pronounce a golem, but go ahead. Whatever. The chief a mystic of, or sorry, the chief rabbi of uh, Prague, Mal Maharal, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, and um, yeah, or Judah, Caesar. He um, he. Sees a need to uh, defend the uh, city of Prague because um, Easter is uh, coming up, and that's a time when other Christians who live um, outside of the walled uh, Jewish ghetto uh, kind of get this uh, bloodlust against the Jews. And because of this, he or Judah consulted the uh, Kabbalah, which is the book of Jewish uh, mysticism, and summoned the golem out of clay. So he basically made a artificial man. An artificial man. The Gollum. Let's talk a little bit about the Kabbalah. What do we know about the Kabbalah? In contemporary society, what do you know about the Kabbalah? I had always thought it was just a club. A club? Yeah. Where is that club? I, I don't know where the club starts. I just know you get to wear a little bracelet. Bracelet? You're talking about the San Diego Club. There's a rabbi out there that does stuff like that. And so who are some of the pop artists that have been influenced by the Kabbalah? Madonna. Madonna. Britney Spears. A number of others. Uh, Demi Moore, I think. Pardon me? Demi Moore and, like, Amasa Kutcher. Aren't they, like, big into that? Uh, I think they gave millions of dollars to it the other year or something. Well, <laughs> does anybody well, know, other than saying it's Jewish mysticism, what it's all about, this Kabbalah thing? Um, Go ahead. Um, it's it's about a, a deeper uh, a connection with God. Basically, um, it's about um, understanding the ideals of uh, creation and kind of the more uh, spiritual and emotional nature of the world rather than just the physical. Hmm. I have heard, that's good, that's a good description. I have heard some people describe Kabbalah in the context of other religions. And one interesting description that I've heard is that essentially all religions have a bureaucratic level where people sort of talk about the rules that have to be done. Then they have a pedestrian level which is where the common people actually practice it, following whatever the rules are that are given to them. And then they have a deep level. And the deep level is practiced usually only by a very small elite within the religion. And that all religions have these various levels. And that the deep level is where they have often a very great commonality across religions, a really deep level of spiritual questioning, spiritual uh, mechanics that often asso- that are often associated with that. And uh, the Kabbalah is sometimes thought of as that very deep level within Judaism. And some people say that the Kabbalistic rabbi is the rabbi's rabbi, meaning the normal rabbi goes to the 
Kabbalistic rabbi who often operates out of a garage, <laughs> you know, so, somewhat uh, with much less, you know, superficial grandness, to talk about, you know, the things dealing with deep levels of spirituality. And in the Kabbalah, there's uh, scripture, there's scripture, there's actual word, there's text, but also there's the interpretation of Hebrew letters. Uh, if you ever hear someone talk about the interpretation of Hebrew letters. It's incredibly intricate, the definitions of the shapes and why they are there, relating it to creation and existence. This is fascinating. And that all religions essentially have this level where they go into it, uh, sort of spirituality, very deep. So on a cursory way, we often say that's mysticism. But it's actually, that's just a superficial word to describe something that's very complicated and very deep. Go ahead. Um, so something that I found um, interesting and relation to a Kabbalah is when a Judah was a summoning of the golem he uh, mentioned um, or the a true name of God and um, so in a Jewish tradition um, after the uh, destruction of the uh, second temple um, and the name of God um, uh, disappeared because the um, high priest was killed and the name of God was transferred one like from one high priest to another, and and the name of God gives a power and um, intelligence. So um, a lot of what the, the Kabbalah like um, after the second uh, destruction of the temple tried to do was sort of recreate um, and discover the name of God in order so we can understand the elements. Mm -hmm. So in terms of that, I think is interesting. That is interesting. Um, uh, actually, launching from that, why do you think Marge Percy infuses the novel with the concepts of the Kabbalah? Why do it? I mean, why put it in there? It's not sort of an arbitrary thing. You throw things into novels randomly. So what is the idea of mysticism or deep spirituality? What does that have to do with the novel? Why did she put it in? <coughs> Think about that. Why would you put it in if you were going to write a novel like this? Just one thing that I was thinking about when I was reading more of the beginning because they were a little bit more parallel in the beginning and then they got, we got sort of focused on Shira. All right, yeah. Um, but just the parallels between uh, the creation of uh, and um, Joseph. Interesting. And that sort of wanting to play God. Yeah, fascinating. Um, and using just various uh, using various techniques, but in the end, sort of by using Kabbalah and by using technology. It, um, she's sort of creating this technological religion that mm -hmm. Avram uses in his creation. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, one particular thing about this this future is that religion is technology. Interesting, the merger of really technology of some type. That's, that's, you raised a, a, a bunch of things. That technology of some type becomes mixed with the idea of spiritualism. 
sometimes we want to use spiritualism rather than religion because religion often refers to the pedestrian or bureaucratic form. But here we're clearly not talking about that in this novel. Um, I also saw a connection between, let's say, like the role of uh, spirituality um, and also the role of technology. Yes, say more about that. Well, so um, let's say the Jews in Prague used a spirituality as kind of a a defense against the um, outside world, um, much as the free city of Atikva used a technology um, as kind of their way to uh, set them apart and a defense against the outside world. So you see a parallel. That's a great point. There's a parallel between technology and spiritualism. Especially the deeper, sort of the deeper level of spiritualism. Deeper level because, of spiritualism. Because, I mean, the Jews in Prague are all, well, Jewish, they're all religious, <laughs> and the Christians outside are the ones that they're trying to protect themselves from. So there's a sort of pedestrian level of religion, and then there's the deeper spirituality that they're trying mm-hmm. to use. Okay. Now let's pursue this a little bit more. The idea of technology and spiritualism. What do they do with technology? What do they do? What is the purpose of it? What is Abram's purpose of technology, of using technology? What is his main goal? Uh, defense. Defense. And control. Control. But purposely, he's trying to create creation. something with it, right. creation with it. He's creating his, uh, his creature, his it. Now, let's go to the mystical story that is interwoven. They don't have technology in the production of this golem, Joseph. What do they have? Clay and a frame. Clay and what? A frame that they build it A frame and clay. And what do they use mechanically? Their hands and shovels. No, no. The power of the word of God. The power of the word, the, the sacred scripture. So you see, there's a parallel between the scripture, the words, the mechanics, and the devices of technology that are being used. The parallel that is being made is technology versus scripture, as if scripture is one type of technology that accesses something, and technology is another type of way to access essentially the same thing. So you have a parallelism between spiritual mechanics and Things mechanics, technology. It's What's that? It's interesting that it's words that creates these. That you know, he's ever programs with words. And, and when you use those words, what do you reach out for in order to create? You said it already. You used actually the word. What word did they use? in the one they were using it. The name of God? Yeah. You actually reach out towards the essence of creation, the source of creation, with the words. And with technology, you're doing something similar. So one of the things that Mark Percy seems to be doing is making a parallel between people that are using technology to create and the very you know, more dated understanding of God's creation, using it from his own power to create. Because essentially, both stories create the same type of thing. Go ahead. Do you mind if I use an example from 
on the movie? Please do. Um, have you ever seen the movie Pi? Pi. Yeah. All right. So um, there's this a mathematician who tries to uh, figure out sort of the system of the uh, stock markets and um, and how it works. And um, he comes upon a like um a number that uh, never repeats. It goes on to a um infinity and and then uh, with a group of actually the Kabbalah scholars, they come to um, understand that that number um, is pi, and that number um, is also God. Um, it's like the word of God, and he uses a technology in order to try to understand the nature of God. Mm-hmm. So I I see that movie as kind of like a I'm intermediate between like the story of Joseph and Judah, and then the story of Ashira in terms of like the a technology is used to understand God and try to understand the world much like that he's using to program the cyborg. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting, especially with especially when you think about what you were saying about they're trying to reach towards God. But they you know, with Pi you can never quite put your finger on what it is. Right. And, you know, with this they can they can try and create and they can imitate creation, but they can never quite do it like God has. They can they they never quite reach it. There's always something that's a little off. And just that sort of reaching, reaching and never making it. But Actually we might as well address this issue since you've already raised it. Something that's a little off. Um, meaning the creation isn't sort of perfect human. Yeah. There's always sort of idiosyncrasies. But how trying to create humans. Right, but how are the creations doing as time goes on? Becoming more and more human, under their own willpower, under their own strength. What is the fate of those creations? What's that? I said I'm not quite finished yet. Okay. It's not optimistic. Was that? It is not optimistic. Just it's not least. optimistic. So those yeah, of you who are still reading, will right, we'll, you'll leave, you'll that, leave that question. I think that's <laughs> uh, you're going to have to Fair ask, enough. you know, what is what is the fate? And, but one of the things I want you to think about when you find out the fate of these creations is, what then is the parallel that Marge Percy is saying between people who create, reaching out to the power of God, either through technology or through mystical means, versus the other essence of creation, which would, in large Percy's sense, would be a godly creation. Go ahead. Can I try to answer that? Or Go ahead. Until, um, without giving away the ending, something that I felt was that each of these creations, so Yud and um, Joseph, Joseph um, were sort of, they weren't created to create life, to sort of create something new, kind of for the idea that they're created for an end. For a purpose. Right. And because of that, it separates them from, let's say, creation for creation's sake. That is a good point, but it's highly, it's highly debatable for some people. Uh, is that really different from life that we have here on Earth? You all have brains. Unless we can say the meaning of life, I don't really think we can definitively... Well, let's talk about it. You all have brains. You're here in the class thinking. What were the reasons for those brains? 
Well, you won't I, have digits on your fingers. From a Darwinian perspective. You had better term papers, better typing. From a Darwinian perspective, you can look at each one of the assets that you have, each one of the characteristics that you have, and say, it is there for a purpose, for a specific purpose, defined evolutionarily. Now, does it really matter that it was a natural selection process that got you to where you are now, or whether it was a human deciding, hey, I think I'm going to put this characteristic in this person, in this thing? Just think about that. But the basic idea I want to get to before we get into too much detail is that there is an issue going on in the novel between artificial intelligence, the creation of it, and human identity. So one of the things that Marge Percy is asking is, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a sentient? You know what the word sentient means? Sentient, self-aware, thinking being. What does it mean to be a sentient, self-aware, thinking being? And this is a fundamental concern of life as we know it. There was a recent death in the parrot world. Anyone know about that? Yeah, but I don't remember the parrot's name. Alex. He died a couple decades before his normal expected death. He recently died. Now, this Alex was a very unusual bird. They had taught it to speak. And the unusual thing about it is you could actually carry on a conversation with Alex. Uh, in terms of endearment, the whole thing. You could actually talk to it, and it could talk back to you. And the conversations were quite in-depth. You could actually carry on quite a long time saying different things, and it would talk back, responding to what you're talking about. And, of course... The naysayers were saying, oh, it's just mimicking in a very clever way, but it went on and on and on. The vocabulary was huge that this parrot had. And what it could say when you talked to it was, was absolutely striking. Now, one of the things that Alex was raising among so many people was, what is the definition of sentience? Is it really something that only humans can have? And they thought that parrots couldn't have sentience or self-awareness couldn't carry on a conversation because the brains, A, weren't big enough or didn't have enough folds or X, Y, and Z. But then this parrot kept on talking. Now, the difference between a parrot and a chimp in this regard, or a gorilla, is that the chimps and the gorillas, they have to use sign language. So sometimes it looks a little cute with the fingers going and the hands going. But not all that many people know sign language. But the parrot just grabs you by the ears and starts chewing your head off and having a, an, a conversation as I would have a conversation with you. I mean, it would do things like, it's going, like the, the, the day is coming to an end in the closet and said, you better get back to bed now. And, and the parrot would say, are you coming back tomorrow? And the, and, the, and the person that was burning the cage said, yes, yes, I'm coming back. I'll be here in the morning. Will you sleep well? The parrot would say, have a good night's sleep. We'll see you in the morning. I mean, conversations like that. It would go on and on and on, the vocabulary and the sentences with proper grammar and the whole thing. So the question is, what does it actually mean? Now, sometimes we like to say that only we are human. Only we, as humans, deserve to be called sentient and deserve to be in control of everything else. It is an ideology that we have that we can control all other life. We can create it by 
artificial insemination with regard to cows and goats. We can clone it. We can create it in Petri dishes. We can manage it. We can mow down forests. We can grow back forests. Okay? But nowhere do we have people in the masses, in the large numbers. I mean, in terms of the huge large numbers, like 90% of the population, thinking that that other life is anything but something that's for our benefit that we made, that we're in control of. We're the king of the mountain. Go ahead. There's this uh, sentence in the book, and I don't remember what part it is, so if anyone could help me, that'd be great. But um, they mentioned a dolphin songs mm-hmm. and how... So, obviously, because of the um, ecological disaster, um, all the dolphins are gone, but they said... I think it's whales. Yeah, it was whales. whales? Okay, well, whales. And um, and how, like, how after they were gone, they finally translated their songs and realized that they were actually singing about things, that, which meant to me that there was some sort of a sentient life form that they wiped out. Mm-hmm. Well, we basically opened up that issue. What is not only human identity, but what is the identity of other life? Okay. And one of the things that you're going to want to talk about is, does God treat, from Marge Percy's perspective, from her spiritual perspective, does God treat life that God creates differently than the way we treat life that we think we create? Or at least control. It's an interesting thing. And that's some of the tensions. What does that mean? It's not just human identity, but sentience identity. Self-aware identity. Okay, what's one of the other themes that you find in the novel? Do you mind if I say one more thing about the creation thing? Go right ahead. Um, One particular thing that I've noticed about uh, Judah and Avram is that they're not portrayed in a good light, and they are not. They're not what? They're not portrayed in a good light, and as in far a, as I in can a good tell, light. Yeah. As far as I can tell, they're not very nice people. Not nice people. I mean, they they have they have something that they want to do, and they are so focused on that that they sort of will mow down anyone in their way to get it. They don't <coughs> care as long as they're doing what they need to do. They have some undesirable aspects. Would you say that that those undesirable aspects, while undesirable from your perspective, are rare or common? Among they're, they're decently common, I would say. Decently common, you say. Um, what I'm trying to say is that they are very human, and they're clearly imperfect. And that they're perhaps the reason why their uh, attempts at creation are rather ill-fated uh, is because they are not perfect. They are imperfect humans. You know, this God has created. Well, their God has created imperfect humans. So well. how could imperfect humans create anything less than? Even imperfect. Well, my question would then be raised specifically with Judah and Joseph. Is at the beginning when Judah first gets the vision about creating the golem, 
he he almost decides not to do it. He questions his faith. It's, you know, always before when he's had you know this vision of you know a body being placed in there or something like that, he's been able to basically stave off any disaster that's coming. But when he gets the uh, the mandate. All right, now let's let's shift over to another idea, completely different from the idea of creation. What else is going on? I, I thought one of the interesting aspects of the novel was the like, extreme level of corporatism that has uh, replaced um, real government. Mm. Um, it's mentioned that after uh, like the horrible disasters that destroy the Middle East, government kind of collapses and has turned into like a sporting event hmm. to see who gets elected and people bet on it, but um, the world is essentially divided into uh, spheres of influence by the uh, multinational corporations. Hmm. Yeah, and they have these multinational corporations uh, with spheres of influence within which there is considerable prosperity. And then they have, in addition to those multinational corporations, what are the what are the three levels of the environment that exists, the social environment that exists? There's the glop. There's I a glop. That's what it's called. Then there's the free cities, and then there's just multis, I guess, the different enclaves. Okay, so we have the multis, which are like the multinational corporations that have their own environments with considerable wealth within those environments and then they have the free cities which stay independent from the multis and then we have the glop which is basically everybody else which is the large majority of the of the population how do the free cities stay independent from the multis they sell themselves basically they sell technology they, they sell technology capitalism pardon me capitalism capitalism they sell they make themselves useful in some way so the multis actually purchase things from them okay so one of the things that you can see here is a political economy. One way to describe this is the politics of economics or economic politics. So what we talk about here is political economy. The idea of corporations having political influence. And that's a huge field in political science. People study the political economy, and that's the inter inter interaction and interrelation between politics and the economy. Okay, and then we've also caused we've also covered another one as well, which is environmentalism. The environmentalism is very diverse, all bad. What are some of the environmental things that have happened? Uh, a large portion of the Middle East has been blacked off and banned. By how? What through? Um, wasn't it just some religious fanatic detonated a nuclear bomb? Just so there was a, a post post nuclear holocaust that occurred in the Middle East. Okay. The nine years war, I believe. Twelve, maybe. There's, there's like a couple twelve years war. But the basic idea, the basic idea, we don't need to get caught up in details, is that there was a nuclear aspect to the future. What else? What other kind of aspects to the future? Um, global warming has basically uh, destroyed the, the ozone layer, so you cannot walk out during the, sun, the sunny part of the day because UV will damage your, damage your body. Mm -hmm. okay. So you have to wear the second, spec, which is like yeah, a second, second skin, skin, which has UV radiation protection. That's also that 
the temperature hovers around 30 to 35 degrees Celsius, which is pretty hot. So we have radiation, ultraviolet radiation, damaging, uh, which allows, which requires people to wear skins when they go outside. And then we have uh, desertification. Desertification. You can't grow things except in certain areas. The water is also toxic. The water. So when they go for swims, sometimes they want to go out and have a swim and. They can only swim if they have certain protective clothing on. You just can't go skinny dipping and just jump in there. Um, like some type of protection, some type of protection you yeah. have on. And what's that? The polar ice caps have melted, so the water level is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. So the terrain is unpredictable uh, based on the um, height above sea level or below. Like you never know what will be underwater or what uh, will be revealed. Yeah, that was one of the big things they said about some of the free cities. Those they always put them in locations that were kind of uncertain if they would last. That way, a multi wouldn't come through and possibly basically take them over because they had no idea if that investment would last. Yeah, yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have basically a, a lot of things, a lot of themes going on. Now, remember, we make sure we finish the novel before Thursday because we got to get to the end of it. Okay. Let's read some sections here. Let's go. Everyone has the same edition as I do. That's great. Let's go to page 33. And about halfway down the page. Okay, sharp smell of urine and shit, a body. No, he was still alive. Around the body with its chest torn open and the arterial blood spurting out stood a chanting circle of gang ninos, all wearing cut-off jackets in purple and gold with a snarling rat emblazoned on the back, lightning shooting from his eyes, body pulsating in constant movement, caught in mid-leap over and over again. They were chanting their killing song. She paused, kept moving. She could be lying there five minutes later. Everywhere the signs of two gangs warred, 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 uh, lasered into the, into the pavement, splashed on the walls. Disputed turf was dangerous territory, a war zone. She saw a stairway ahead. A toll had been set up across it manned by a group dressed like the downed kid. They had an old jury-rigged hand box, and the line stuffed pa- shuffled past it. She read off the stairway tolls and passed through their security, paid and climbed out into the raw. Parts of the glop were under domes, but the system had not been completed before government stopped functioning. There were still elections every two years, but they were just highly bet on sporting events. All politicians did was run for office. Every quadrant was managed by the remains of the old UN, the Echo Police. After the two billion died in the Great Famine and the plagues, they had authority over earth, water, air outside domes and wraps. Otherwise, the Maltese ruled their enclaves. The Freetowns defended themselves as they could. And the glop rotted under the poisonous sky, ruled by feuding gangs and overlord. 
whatever society is that. And can you think of any societies here on earth that you might compare in a similar fashion? One case uh, that's pretty unique in the world right now is uh, the case of Somalia. Somalia. An entire country that is effectively without government. Uh, mm-hmm. has been for the past like 20 years, maybe yeah. 15 to 20 years now. Um, and uh, there have been numerous attempts by various countries to uh, put in some order, but um, they have been unsuccessful, and still uh, the country is essentially divided between warlords who can control drug trade and weapons trade through the country. So it sounds um, somewhat similar to that, just you know, having the little bit of land that you can control and then having to fight to keep it and fight mm-hmm. to expand it. Actually, that's a very good analogy, Somalia. They often call political theorists, democratic, actually developmental theorists, often would call Somalia a case of contested sovereignty. So you have no real nation and gangs that fight. And you also have a country that's environmentally a wreck. Now, when Somalia went belly up, it was during the time of the regime of Siad Bar. And when the Siad Bar regime ended, that was during the presidency of George Bush. Now, that's not the most recent George Bush, but his father. And the CIA went to George Bush, H.W., and said, well, we screwed up. We should have been able to predict the downfall of Somalia, the collapse of the central government. But we were not looking at the correct things. And George Bush reportedly said, well, what were you looking at and what did you miss? And the CIA said, well, we were looking at politics and the economy. We were looking at political control, who had the guns, who was ruling. And from that perspective, it looked like Siad Bar had control of the country and was going to be able to maintain control of the country. But what we forgot to look at, and we didn't look at, was the water table. You see, they'd been having a long drought, and that drought was lowering the water table. And with the lowering of the water table, there was no way that any government had the capacity to rule. So you were going to have the breakdown of order, no matter who was ruling it. So that was a classic case in which environmental degradation led to, in an extreme case, the complete collapse of order. And that has never recovered. We still have a case of contested sovereignty. And right now, of course, we have pirates running around in Somalia, so they're going out into the oceans, into the sea, and capturing, just like pirates of the old days, capturing boats, bringing them back to the mainland, and then saying, if you want the crew and the boat back, you have to pay a ransom. Classic piratism. So what you have is the complete collapse of law and order. So that's what we're talking about. That's what Marge Percy is talking about, that when the environment sufficiently decays, it often becomes impossible for any law and order to be maintained. Now, looking at Somalia shows you how badly the environment has to decay for that to happen. Because Somalia was no Garden of Eden 
before when Siad Bar was ruling. It was already pretty much a patch of desert. But when things get to be really bad, nothing can stop it. And you get the complete collapse of society. Anyway, that's a really great example. Well, let's talk about um, the next page, page 34. Let me read another example here. Um, Go ahead. Do you mind if I comment on something else I noticed in your yeah, example? Don't, 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 okay, ask don't ask if I mind. Just right. say, I'd like to comment on something. Okay. I'd like to comment on something. All right, great. All right, so um, I mentioned they were called the gang Aninos, and um, it made me think about how in the GLOP or um, many people are a multilingual, the cultures or of the old days, I guess, have have very much combined. So, I mean, you don't really have as much of a sort of cultural division. You just have a I want to survive division between okay. people. So, yeah. Hmm. That's a good point. And I want to survive orientation. All right. Well, look, let's go to page 34. Let me read a little bit. At the float car enclosure, she put her hand into the box, and the monitor let her enter. The car boss set the coordinates. If she tried to change them, the car would simply land. When she arrived, it would automatically return. She paid in advance. Her credit was running low, but she hoped to be home in an hour. The float car ran on a cushion of air, following the old broken roads. It could fly for brief periods at a low altitude, frequently necessary to cross a river or a ravine where a bridge had collapsed. It was solar-powered, quiet and not particularly fast. It could also move over water, which was important because when you had not taken a route in a while, you never knew how the ocean and estuaries might have advanced over the land, flooding low-lying sections. What had been terra firma three years before might be under the waves, for with the polar caps rapidly melting, the oceans rose and rose. Float cars were vehicles of the multi-grids and the free towns. Fast tanks moved as well over broken terrain, and they were armored. Corporate travel was usually by zip. Driving a hired float car was undemanding. She did not do anything except steer it around or over obstacles. It had the coordinates of her last of her destination and proceeded on its own. Overhead a vast helix of vultures circled. They had evolved to withstand UV radiation. They could live in the raw, as could most bugs, as could gulls and rats and raccoons. Not people, not songbirds, all dead. So the insects flourished and moved in waves over the land, eating the hills to to desert. The hills were deeply eroded. Scrub trees like pitch pine, wild cherry and bare oak had replaced sugar maples and white pines. Brambles and multiflora rose, grew in impenetrable thickets and she detoured around. If you were trying to describe what's going on with that passage, <coughs> as it relates to contemporary society, what would you think you'd say? Is this right Massachusetts where they come? 
What Massachusetts would they, be? They are in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. We're in Massachusetts Bay. Well, what do you think? If you were to describe in sort of political terms what's going on as it would relate to our interpretation of politics today. Remember, science fiction is supposed to be relevant to us. What would you say? It blatantly points out the reasons that we need to care for our environment because if we don't, we could be living in a Boston like that. Okay, in a threatening sort of way, like if you don't, that's one way of thinking it. The, the one thing that you you might add to that is that this is what happens with the politics of climate change. Meaning, when climate change occurs, politics has to adapt. And this type of interaction that she's describing here, what happens in certain types of areas, what happens in certain types of... Uh, what happens to wildlife, what happens to humans, what happens to things as you sort of flying it around, you're seeing an example of climate change politics. Not just what happens to the wildlife, not just what happens externally to you, but how you have to adapt. You see, she then has to take a car, a special type of car, that can navigate all these areas and get through certain hoops. So human civilization has to adapt to whatever happens to climate change. So is this concept of human civilization adaptation to climate change that goes throughout the novel. But you can really pick it up in a, in a, in a statement like that. Well, that's basically it for today. Now let's make sure that we're clear for what happens on Thursday. We're going to conclude the novel. We'll read some sections from the novel that are sort of bringing to light various themes. But you want to try to ask yourself when you get to the novel, What's the whole point? What's the whole point that she's really trying to say? What are, and there may be more than one, what is the big deal? What's the whole thing really about? What comment is she trying to make about us as humans? Well, see you Thursday.